Welcome to Writing the Wrong Way. This is a podcast for serious writers who want to develop their skills in artistry and stand out in a crowded industry by taking intelligent, creative risks. I'm your host, Jonathan Ball. I hold a PhD in literature. I'm the author of uh, numerous books, and I take a very analytical approach to art making, emphasizing both efficiency and experimentation. Please consider doing me a favor and pre-ordering my new book uh, from Coach House Books, The National Gallery. Uh, it contains sonnets for Leatherface from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, elegies in the manner of Rilke, but for a dead iPhone, uh, and other strange missives from yours truly, the poet laureate of hell. So go to thenationalgallery.ca for more information. That's thenationalgallery.ca. Thanks. I'm here with Keith Kadju, who uh, is on his way, if not right now, becoming the most frequent guest on this podcast, uh, primarily because we tend to record podcasts in clumps. Uh, <laughs> I think you actually are you know, officially now are the most frequent yeah, guest. Just edged, edged out Darren. If not having done already, because you, you were on the Hot Ones, mm-hmm. like the Hot Wings ripoff one, yeah. which was actually two. Plus, you had you were on two more. And I yeah. want to say you did another one, but I forget. So you've been on at least four. This is at like, least, like at least number I think five. I think it's four. So, this so I guess five. you are the number one. And actually, the most popular guest uh, I've ever had. Weirdly, uh, no offense, Keith, but like I've yes. had bigger names than you on this podcast. Yes, that's true. If and I, you outrank them. Quite no one heavily. knows who I am, and yet they want they want to hear they want to hear all the about beads of wisdom. They want to hear your opinions on horror, and so um, uh, you know. We're going to talk a little bit uh, about Thomas Ligotti, who is uh, an author we're both a little obsessed with. But first, why don't we you know, just say a little bit about yourself, Keith? And what do you do? Who are you, Keith Kennedy? Uh, well, uh, trying, as I might, to be a writer here in Winnipeg, along with, you know, paying bills and such. <laughs> and Keith has a book called Gaze uh, Out, yeah. which is a very creepy uh, horror novella out uh, of Quattro books, and, and as well as the co-editor of The Shadow of Reporters in Maine, mm-hmm. a great uh, collection of horror tales yeah. and gothic, uh, uh, you know, supernatural I've, tales. I've sort of fallen into editing the uh, this annual chapbook with uh, the Winnipeg Writers' Festival for... Uh, uh, it's called the Phantasmagoriana. So last year was the 200th anniversary of Frankenstein. <clears throat> Excuse me. So we we ripped off the uh, the Byron Shelley Polidori thing of of staying in the villa overnight and writing ghost stories. And uh, we did this event where we got four writers to stay overnight in the Dalnevert Museum and then uh, write a story about it. And Jonathan, you were in uh, edition one, which I edited, and that's becoming a, an annual thing. And so I've, I've just sent out the messages to the authors for volume two. So I can't tell you who they are yet, because not everybody has accepted. Sure. Uh, but volume two of that is coming out. So th- those are my two big editing credits. Will really. it be Halloween as well? Again, yeah, it'll be out on. Oh, nice. So uh, the, the writing event, so the first event where we'll have like a reading beforehand with everybody and then lock them in the place overnight. That's on Friday, September the 13th, which is a full moon. It nice. just seems apropos. And then, yeah, on Halloween night, we'll release the, uh, the chat book with uh, the four stories. And that'll be happening at the Downover House again? Yep. So there you go. Everyone can look forward to that. And um, 
Uh, can you actually get the Phantasmagoriana chapbook anywhere at this point? Uh, is it sold you, out? Is it available? You could, and then a prof at the U of M bought it out for her class. Oh, really? Uh, so if you were wanted, in that class? She wanted, so if you were in that class, you lucked out and got the last what class bunch is that? of copies. So are they studying my story in this class? Uh, I'm not sure which story she wanted oh. or if she wanted all of them. It's, uh, it's a prof who normally does Victorian fiction. So I think she may, maybe was tying it into the history of the house. Wow. But, uh, Very yeah, curious. So she bought up the rest of our, our stock so that uh, she could teach it in her wow. class. Well, there you have it. And uh, today we're going to talk, as I said, about Thomas the Gaudy. Because um, uh, Keith, you know, and I both, uh, I, I like to joke that I write, I'm a horror writer, but nobody agrees with me. Uh, <laughs> Keith is more of a pedigree as a horror writer. Uh, but I think, again, like, you know, we've been kind of toiling in the the minds of what you might call literary fiction, <laughs> which is this ridiculous genre with a ridiculous name. Uh, but I, it is very much, horror has a strange, you know, it's this genre that has sort of a low reputation, but I think, you know, high, uh, really is, is the most kind of obviously high art genre in a strange way. Like it's a, it's a genre that, Historically, and, and Legati is a great example of this. Historically, like prides itself on um, p- poetic prose, you know, mm-hmm. and and you know, vivid descriptions, and you know, really plumbing uh, emotions. In the, it's very character interested. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's a very, yeah. it's a very quote unquote. Um, it's, it's almost like the opposite of what people think it is in many respects. And Ligotti yeah. to me is an interesting figure because he's so self-aware um, as a horror author, but at the same time, um, he's really working in a tradition in a particular way. He has these ties to Poe and Lovecraft and even outside of you know horror, but more in the kind of, I guess you might say weird fiction vein. He, he has mm. this really clear tie to Kafka. Um, yeah, but he's also much. this strange, like, sui generis, like, isolated individual. I don't know. How would you describe Ligotti for people who don't know who Thomas Ligotti is? Yeah. And, like, what his work is like? Because I find it hard to describe him mm-hmm. personally. It, it definitely, he absolutely is hard to describe. I think you're right that he sort of stands all, all by himself despite... Uh, becoming rather trendy in the last little while. So I, I, I had heard the name, uh, but had never been able to track down his books. For, Even for, now it's hard quite to track a while. down And now it's like, books. it's definitely hard to... looking at some <laughs> online yeah. because I had heard about this story um, and I was like thinking like, where is this story published that I've been hearing about on this other podcast? And um, it turns out it's in this book that I can buy a copy for $730 yeah. if, on Amazon secondhand. So he's he's been this sort of well-kept secret for a really long time, but people in the know have always known who he was. Like sort of aspiring horror writers always knew, uh, and even the idea that like he wrote uh, he wrote an X Files script that was never made. Really, I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, no, he wow. uh, and uh, it was the, never made. Eh? It was never made. So he wrote like a spec oh, script really that they really liked, that. and they never found a way to do it. And so you mm. you can find it online now. Um, so it, this was someone who, like, I had, I had heard the name. No, I haven't read it. No, i got to um, get a hold of this. That would um, be so cool. It, and it's I'll very... I'll to it. If I can find it to your listener, I'll link yeah. it to it. Somehow. And it's very Ligotti-ish. Like, it's, huh. it's very, very crazy. Like, for, from what I understand, so I haven't read it firsthand. Mm. I've just read, like, synopses 
of it, and it's it's unfilmable. There's no way they could have done it, but it's a very Ligotti thing. It would have been great. Um, but so anyway, so I, I knew who he was, but had never read anything firsthand. And when I really got to the point of like, okay, I'm going to track something down, was uh, once True Detective season one dropped, yeah, and everybody was talking about Ligotti, Ligotti, Ligotti. Uh, so that's when uh, I managed to get a hold of Teatro Grotesco, which was not that old at that point, so it was still relatively available. And the Conspiracy Against the Human Race, and then a couple of years after that, because sorry for the motorcycle. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> we were in the studio, and there's like some guy revving the motorcycle outside <laughs> in a very nightmarish manner. Yeah, and then so after that, the the Penguin Classics edition came out. So we're sort of it's it's the right time to suddenly become interested in him because you're, you're actually able to get a hold of a lot of these these books but he does have this tie to Kafka because he has this really interesting view of worker life and just the drudgery that there's in, embedded in his horror is always some sort of drudgery there's something that just repeats and repeats and repeats uh, that yeah. is usually the basis of why everything's terrible. And he, and he really conceptualizes life itself as a sort of drudgery. There's a great story in um, Tetra Grotesco where this character is talking about... The, he, like this, the plot of the story is that this character is being visited occasionally by this strange mannequin puppet. Like this kind of puppet... life Like this life-sized, uh, by which I mean like a human-sized puppet just like magically appears out of nowhere um, and, you know, just kind of makes bizarre requests, like hands out a prescription pad when he, you know, to him and he has to fill his prescription, but there's nothing written on it. You know, (laughs) but anyway, this, this narrator is like talking about it in this bizarre bland tone. Like, well, you know, this nonsense keeps happening. It was the uh, nonsense again. The lights turned a certain way, and then I knew the nonsense was going to be upon me soon. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, it's just like a bizarre. He has a strange kind of joking manner, but it's truly terrifying. Like yeah. a lot of the things he's describing. Teatro Grotesco, I think, is is a lot funnier mm-hmm. than his other book. He's always very self aware. And so even in, um, like, Songs of a Dead Dreamer and Grimscribe, which are, I would, I would say, darker, uh, they are still very funny. Uh, so his view of, of worker life is often, like, weirdly hilarious if you can get outside of it. So, like, if you get bo- too bogged down in the details, and it is very grim, it's, like, it's sort of something where if you get too into it when you read, it will make you very depressed and very sad. Um, but if you can sort of look at it from the outside, then it's it's suddenly weirdly funny. So yeah, there's another one, uh, and I can't remember the title. It's something about uh, my retributive. Oh, I just my case for retributive my, action. Yes, I just that, read that story. Earlier, so th- so. that's the one about the, uh, the guy who is going to uh, a psychiatrist, who, in order to cure his depression, prescribes work at this company and it turns out that all the doctors work for the company to which they prescribe people to go work for them and when he shows up uh, he's not given a schedule he's just given this stack of quote unquote work to do Uh, he's not told when his lunch break is and one of the other guys is like I'll come get you at lunch and we'll go have lunch together and he comes and gets him and he's like alright let's go 
let's go to a restaurant. And he's, it's, it's like, it's been way, it's way past lunchtime. It's like eight o'clock at night. He's been there all day. He hasn't taken a break. The guy finally comes to get him. They go to the restaurant. The guy pulls a paper bag lunch out (laughs) and he's like, oh, they don't serve food here. (laughs) And like, there's just moments like that, that are just, they're so silly, like for lack of a, a different word um but that same story culminates in like the, a man is being turned into a spider that, yeah you know because the company is testing this strange venom like mm-hmm. it's a very dark and like eerie and 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 truly kind of disturbing story on a lot of levels yeah. but then you have this yeah this weird level of like the strange satire of office yeah life and, and bureaucratic or even uh, Capitalism. The, the ongoing stories of uh, so, so like yeah, the, there's another podcast I listened to called The Casual Academic, and they did they did an episode on him, and they mentioned a lot that he has sort of this post this post capitalist apocalyptic worldview that like all these towns he's looking at are places that have sort of been ravaged by like they never say what the exactly it was, yeah, but like something like a mine that is now dead, and so the the town is slowly dying and. Uh, the, the industry is just leaving these people behind and moving along. So the town manager story is this great example of it starts out that it's in like city hall. That's the town manager's office. And then it's like, it's in a strip mall. And then eventually it's just a shed by the side of the road with town manager scrawled yeah. in wood. And he never comes out and never does anything. But yet <laughs> and the town know, just deteriorates. transforming this town into a weird sideshow. And it, yeah. it, and it is a disturbing gruesome story in a lot of respects mm-hmm. I find Ligotti so Ligotti if you haven't heard of Ligotti or read much about Ligotti he's most well known as a short story writer so he's like uh, again Poe and Lovecraft in that respect in that he's primarily known as an author of short stories he has done one novella um, which is called My Work Is Not Yet Done which is you know this kind of very short novel which was the first thing I read by Ligotti was this novella of his um, which and really, it's hard to compare him to other people after you make like superficial comparisons because there is a way in which he um, is kind of doing, to some degree, something like cosmic horror uh, of Lovecraft, but not quite. Like mm-hmm. Jeff Vandermeer wrote the introduction to the um, Penguin Classics uh, edition of Legati, which I rec- Keith had mentioned it already, but I recommend the Penguin Classics. Uh, Edition, which is collects more or less collects his first two books, uh, and it's it's notable for a couple of reasons. So one is it's worth mentioning that um, the god is not dead, <laughs> like it, you know he's very much alive, and though he claims to have quit writing uh, fiction, we'll see, I suppose. But he claims to have quit writing fiction because of his anhedonia, which makes it impossible for him to feel pleasure in things. Now, to what degree he's serious about any of this is, you know, maybe hard to say, I guess. But, you know, supposedly that mm-hmm. Ligotti's career in fiction is over um, by his own claim. Uh, it's, the classics edition is interesting, though, because, you know, you don't, one, see a lot of, like, Penguin's classics editions. They're starting to do more of them, like, of, you know, living authors or recent authors. They just did a Matheson one, although he's mm-hmm. dead, but you know, he's a relatively you know, recent author, uh, although older than Ligotti. Mm-hmm. Um, and, the, and it basically, as I say, collects these first two books of his, 
but also it has an introduction by Jeff Van de Meer where he links a number of interesting kind of comparisons. And one of the things he points out is that Ligotti is one of the few people who seems to have subsumed Lovecraft. And like, I think the way he puts it is something like, he's taken Lovecraft in and like left Lovecraft's shell like in the path as he moves on, mm-hmm. <laughs> as opposed to being totally destroyed by Lovecraft and taken over, you know, and, uh, uh, and just like living in the, wake of that uh, influence which mm-hmm. so many people do they just get so wrapped up in Lovecraft and it's hard to yeah. like move past him uh, whereas I think Legata really has done that in many respects I, I agree with Vandermeer on that for sure mm-hmm. but he, and he has these connections to Poe like this dark these twisted isolates who are really on the verge or, or the margins of society and you know yet have like the strange you know outsider status uh, but don't really necessarily have like rebellious ambitions uh, you know Mm -hmm. the way that sometimes Poe's characters do like many times they just want to be working this office job but they can't do it because their office is an insane nightmare (laughs) you know of chaos (laughs) or something yeah Uh, right like and then the Kafka comparison I think is really uh, interesting and useful but at the same time, like he really is a strange figure that I can't honestly say I can find a good point of comparison to, like in terms of what it's actually like to read him. Mm-hmm. It's not like reading Kafka. Like it's not like reading um, Lovecraft or Poe. You know, it's very singular. Yeah, and it is. He almost exclusively writes in first person, which is like sort of it, like you you don't notice it if you're just plowing through. The books, mm-hmm. and then if you start to like try to break down like exactly how they function, there's an inordinate number of first-person narrators, which makes sense for what he's doing. Um, mm-hmm. I think it plays into the self-awareness, and even ones that seem like they're not. If once you get far enough into them, they usually reveal themselves to be some sort of weird version of a first-person narrator. Um, so, like the the notes on on the writing of horror, a story which starts out as like this instruction manual of here's the different types of horror stories, and here's how you would tell this particular story in these three modes, which is the the one about the haunted pants. Yes. And so again, about being <laughs> premises, he's going to retell the story of haunted trousers. In yeah. These different modes of horror, and that one. This seems like a third person sort of. It's, it reads like an essay initially. Yeah, and, and then it twists, mm-hmm. and it, it's also. But that's another great example of one that is weirdly disturbing, but is also very funny because the premise that it talks about with these haunted trousers is so ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, in many ways, he seems to be like making fun of horror stories half the time, and then on the other hand, he's just extending it into these strange territories, and and mm-hmm. really. Um, He's, he really is not um, a writer that I can say like a lot of cliches collect to. Like even when yeah. he does something, like he uses like a puppet, say, yeah, uh, like in that story, like, a fair bit. But even when he does that, he doesn't really fall into the same way that other people use puppets. You know, mm-hmm. like or again, if this you know this transformation in the office uh, world, he doesn't really go and expect locations. One, one of my favorite, what it sold me on Ligotti was I started to, my, I first read um, Conspiracy Against the Human Race. This is before The True Detective had come out because mm. I had been recommended the book by a Christian book who had just, I guess he'd read it and he'd said, you know, you got to read this book. It's right up your place. So I started reading Conspiracy Against the Human Race and I was just fascinated with this strange nonfiction book that he wrote 
the fundamental argument of um, uh, conspiracy against the human race is this argument. He, he kind of traces the philosophical history of pessimism, which, you know, people say, oh, I'm a pessimist, you know, all the time. But what, the, what pessimism really is, you're probably not a pessimist, because what pessimist really is, really is, is the idea that we should extinguish the human race uh, intentionally <laughs> and ourselves. Uh, and so he kind of traces the history of that idea and its uh, development and its unpopularity. Um, mm. And he also connects this to horror. And he seems to be making a weird elliptical argument that to him, horror at its heart and at its best is making the argument that we should extinguish ourselves and that consciousness is a curse and so on. Mm. So I just read this book. And then when this book was in my head, I, wa- I saw the first season of True Detective, you know, because that had just started coming out yeah. shortly after I had read the book. And I recognized, ha- like, that Rust in True Detective was saying a lot of, basically, crib notes versions mm-hmm. of a lot of the stuff that Ligotti had been writing about, to the point where, uh, you know, there was, like, accusations of plagiarism against the show because of this and so on. Um, although I think those are kind of overstated. But... Mm-hmm. Um, because again, like Ligotti is just summarizing a lot of his, like other people's arguments. And, like there's moments where you can see like really clear, like clearly. Um, uh, I forgot the guy's name already. That's that that made True Detective. Oh, Pizzolatto. Pizzolatto, Nick, Nick like, Pizzolatto. Clearly, you know, read Ligotti and had said yeah. so and so on. It's, but I mean, it's like you can't like like it's True Detective. You do want Russ to be like quoting like where he got the source. Like I found I found it kind yeah. of a ridiculous thing people were arguing. It was. I I understood the controversy to be that Pizzolatto was not up front as much as people wanted that the ideas came from Ligotti. Yeah, I mean, that, I get that. And that apparent, like, this is something too, like, I'd, I'd have to, you'd have to go back and reread all the interviews and do, like, a historical study of it. Yeah. But apparently the anger comes from before True Detective was popular, like, when it first landed, and it had all this talk, this talk about the King in Yellow, and, yeah. and Rust is clearly quoting Ligotti, and then everyone's like, these are wild ideas. Where do you get them from? And he started listing his sort of pulp influences. Mm-hmm. Like he said Laird Barron. He said Tom Sinclair. He forgot to say, or he did say the guy. He yeah. did say because I've seen interviews where he and then these in all the later interviews he just clammed up about it and wouldn't talk about them anymore. So then people sort of got it in their head that he was looking down on them. Yeah. But it's hard to say because for all we know, the guy called him up and told him, "Don't say my fucking name." Could have been anything. <laughs> he's, I, like most he's likely, well-known it's like publishers saying, "Hey, maybe you owe us money." Like yeah. the way that you know how Harley Nelson sued yes. the Terminator, James Cameron. Like yeah. I was just. Or even just could be the studio saying we're worried about like this. We're worried you know? about it. Like it, it could have been anything that is not necessarily that that he didn't want people to know that he had been slumming it and reading these books. I think he very much wanted people to know that that's what he was reading. It's, it was clear, I thought, like because I just read the Ligotti book and I was like, well, this is obviously this guy's read this yeah. Ligotti book. And then I got interested and I loved the first season of True Detective. I've got a few reservations about it, but like yeah. uh, you know, but but I, I was very impressed with it in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I went into his fiction, I first read um, "My Work Is Not Yet Done." This novella of his, yeah. and what most impressed so it was you know good, interesting novella for a little while. And then what most impressed me about it is there's a strange moment uh, in the book where the thing I like most about Ligotti, I think fundamentally, just as a guy who's interested in experimental fiction and you know unusual, unconventional techniques. I like how Ligotti is not afraid to just do something that should not work at all and then just Mm -hmm. act as if it works and move past it 
so confidently and that you just buy it. So like <laughs> I'm reading my work again. There's a moment in that book where I, you know, I can't remember the precise words. I don't have the book in front of me, but I kid you not, uh, you know, dear listeners, I kid you <laughs> not. It basically says this. Uh, it's like a normal kind of realist novel where this guy's like this company and he's kind of, you know, feels like people are making fun of him behind his back. And like maybe he's not getting invited to meetings and so on. Like, but it's, you know, pretty, pretty much straightforward. Nothing too unusual is really happening. Um, and then all of a sudden it's like, basically it says this. This is a transition, more or less. Then a strange supernatural occurrence took place and I just became endowed with dark powers. <laughs> And it never like explains, yeah. like it basically says something like that. It doesn't explain what happened. Um, he just now has crazy dark powers, can manipulate reality and fold time. And he starts to like yeah. take out revenge against these nightmare, uh, this, these, these people he bold. feels are like in a nightmare pact against him. Like yeah. it just, it just takes this bizarre, insane turn, and it never. Does. And it turns out his boss also <laughs> has these powers, and they have this great yeah. bond. Like you and I have complained about lots of other books where it's going really, really well, and then at the end you have the the Bond villain explanation yeah. of all the motivation, and it, it falls really flat. But he does this at, in towards the end of My Work Is Not Yet Done, and it works. Yeah. And, it, and the first the first thing shouldn't have worked, but all of a sudden he has superpowers, and then all of a sudden the reveal that well, someone else also has superpowers. Says, <laughs> something happened. He literally is like, yeah. Then a thing happened, and it doesn't even tell you what happened. Yeah. It's like, and but I can't really explain it anyway. Now I have these crazy superpowers. Sure. And, and as you say, like by the time it call it just moves forward this crazy pace at that point it's totally just this series of surrealist episodes now mm-hmm. and then like this boss uh you know explanation but it, yeah it just it it all works magically and it none of it should work in any way shape or form that was so, what was yeah. so impressive to me when i first read it and it's not even like it's not his best story by any means but it that they then like that book also at the end has three short stories by Ligotti as well, mm-hmm. uh, which aren't really connected to that uh, novella at no, all. No, they're just have, like, lightly tied to mm-hmm. to industry and, and working again because that that seemed to be as you get later into his work, he gets more focused on on that. Like Songs of a Dead Dreamer is more supernaturally focused, and like, there's sort mm-hmm. of more interest like there's even there's a serial killer story in there and then there's the demon one and and then he starts sort of gravitating to, to more and more Kafka-esque like they're all they're all sort of workday horrors kind of some strange nameless town where there's yeah. a nameless figure and there's bizarre development mm-hmm. or, or factories like there's a really interesting yeah. idea I just read the um, the tower, the red, the red tower. tower, which is this great bizarre. That's one of the only ones that is not first person. It's like mm-hmm. it's this weird third person narrator. No, about, it is also a first. Person is it? Narrator. It does twist, yeah. doesn't it? Um, but yeah, like just this odd story of all the impossible things about this building with no doors that goes underground that that churns out nightmares. weird nightmare <laughs> items and yeah. like like. Uh, dolls' eyes that are soft and like weird, just like lots of weird grotesqueries, and it just delivers them across the world to locations where they maybe never be found. <laughs> like, yeah, it's this, and they all come totally out of graves. Insane. That when you go inside yeah. the factory, it's a series of graves, and then the graves open up, and then there's stuff in them. Well, no, <laughs> I just read it. So like, it, it talks about this factory has like it's in a strange like landscape. Uh, it has no entrance to itself. 
There's no windows or doors. It's three stories high, and it's just this red tower and this gray landscape. And then he describes, like, you know, but, but I know it has three, you know, this person is just relating, like, information he's, he's heard about the red tower. Uh, and um, he's never seen it, of course, and no one ever sp- speaks of it, but this is the information that he's heard. And then, you know, he says underneath the top three, t- the, you know, the there's three, like, um, floors above, but there's also three floors beneath, three floors of basement. And the first floor is where they had, were making all these, you know, strange items and then delivering them through a complex series of tunnels. These kind of quote-unquote novelty items, he calls mm-hmm. them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's like, but then the second floor underground is these graves, these unmarked, unnamed graves, which have, were the second, like, phase of the factory's production, where they started to birth creatures. Mm-hmm. You know, okay. And, yeah. like, you know, so these graves that kind of birthed these undead things and, like, sent them across the world and whatnot. And then the th- there is rumored there's a third level uh, underneath as well where the current production is taking place. But what it could be, nobody could say. You know, nobody ever talks to the Red Tower. No one's ever seen it. But yet they are always talking, always of the Red Tower. Because <laughs> this crazy, <laughs> strange twist by the end. He's like, he's like, I, he's like, we all talk of the Red Tower at all times. Everything we say is of the Red Tower. <laughs> you know, it's, it's this is baffling, like, bizarre Borgesian nightmare. Yeah. You know, it's that's maybe the other writer that I see a lot of similarities to is like Borges or mm-hmm. however you pronounce Yeah. And he has um but like the nightmare horror version. Yeah, the dark a much darker yeah. version. But mm-hmm. yeah, the same kind of strangely whimsical even like for mm-hmm. how dark it is. But like he's also very funny and whimsical at the same yeah. time. You know, it's very strange. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, what what impresses you? How do you feel about what do you do with Ligotti? Like that, that's yeah. the like, question I have as I read this. We were just talking about how you know we it's it's sometimes hard to finish reading these Ligotti. Like I haven't finished reading any of the Ligotti books I have for the same mm-hmm. reason Keith was saying he sometimes has a hard time with Ligotti, which is you just kind of don't want it to be done. <laughs> yeah. Like I I feel like I'm worried about this future moment where I won't have more Ligotti to read, and so I've been very slowly moving through these stories. And I also just find it hard to read um, a lot of them at once because they're so dense and they're so um, they have there's so much for you to chew on. Yeah, they are they are very dense. Like you were saying before, that they have very poetic prose, and so it's it's something that you really shouldn't try to read on the bus. Yeah, or like <laughs> you need to be this is like sitting and really able to delve into and and sort of like reading one story at a time. It's yeah, sort of an old school idea of read one, sit with it for a little while and try to unpack everything that's just happened in there. And like the, the, this penguin one, that's two books collect. Like it's big. It's like, there's a lot of material in there. So it, it can take, it can be a little daunting to get all the way through it, but yeah, I don't, I, what exactly is it that I most admire about or that I really like, I, it's hard to say there is something about how bleak they are and yet they're funny and they're dark mm-hmm. and there is something about uh, this was something that I think he takes a cue from Lovecraft but that he, where he's veered off is that Lovecraft stories especially the first person narrators are always someone who is on the verge of madness or like they, they've already broken down because of what they've seen and the last thing they're doing is writing it down but don't read it you know and yeah. you, have, you have like this this conundrum of 
but anyway, like they they have lost it, and so they, their minds are broken by what they've encountered. And Ligotti is sort of a different thing in that the narrator is the only sane person in the story, hmm. and everything around them makes no sense whatsoever. And th- this quote-unquote sane person is observing it and trying to make sense out of it, and there's no sense to be made. And they it's, often accept it. And they, they, ju- they just sort of take it. Yeah, yeah, they just sort of, like, well... Yeah, there's these. This, I saw this spider creature on my way home, and I'm pretty sure it's the guy from the office that quit. Yeah. Right? And he just sort of takes. But that's like that's exactly where the reader is trying to make sense out of all this information. Um, and yeah, like the the nightmarish visions, like they're 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 very original. Mm-hmm. Uh, his his ideas of scary things have have jumped way past like the Cthulhu monsters, and they, they are just way past just the idea of what's scary about puppets or mannequins. Like his, his versions of puppets are, are scary. I think scarier. Yeah. Um, there's something different about them. Like they're Chucky and yeah, they're so overdone at this point that it's, it's, you know, they can still be enjoyable and stuff, but it's refreshing to see a version that feels new. Even if, even if you can recognize and point to like things Mm -hmm. that other people have done, he just like, like that story that, um, my case for retributive action yeah. <laughs> where at one point this uh, character finds in the attic so so one you can count the horror tropes like they go he goes in the attic because he's yeah. heard noises in the attic there's these rats there but they're also somehow the rats have been turned into spiders like they're half spider half rat slash some new thing because this guy is a spider monster is mm-hmm. so like you can start like racking up the horror tropes but they start to combine and twist in weird ways and all yeah. of a sudden like it's this new thing you haven't quite seen and the reaction is not like the normal react the reaction is like oh then I you know did this and I did that like he doesn't run mm. screaming he doesn't you know yeah. he's like well you know then I did this then I did this other thing and now I'm writing to you my friend yeah you know <laughs> to you tell know? you about it mm-hmm. yeah yeah you're right that there are these these great twists on on existing tropes. So like you were saying, like it seems a lot of the times like he's making fun of other mm-hmm. horror stories. And so that's where his, his self-awareness becomes this great strength. But it doesn't come um, into parody. Like he starts like sort of conscious, self-consciously make fun of like a horror story, yeah. like, like with these haunted trousers. But then he like, he, he will make it scary. Like he'll move yeah. it into an actual frightening and disturbing space. Yeah. Like I, I think that's not, I think that's something that not very many other self-aware writers do. They, they, they get stuck in the parody part rather than moving beyond what it is that they're poking fun at. And he's, he, he sees the flaws and, he's, and he manages to, to jump further. So like another one with a really great trope with a, a twist on it is uh, the bungalow house uh, in Teatro Grotesco, which is about this, this guy who, like, again, in a doldrum drudgery job, uh, he works across the street from this like shitty art gallery that's just a dive um, that he goes into every day and he just sort of wanders around and eats his lunch and the gallery owner sort of tolerates him because he doesn't bother anybody he never buys anything either he just looks around at these weird bad pieces of art in this scuzzy spot and then at one day there's uh, there's an exhibit that's like an old cassette player with a cassette in it and the first cassette's called The Bungalow House and he listens to it and it's this narrator talking about this derelict destroyed 
house and he's weirdly mesmerized by it and he listens to it and uh, as the story goes on it, he starts to reveal like it, he's so obsessed that he can't stop thinking about it and he says that it, it's his voice uh, on the cassette and then he goes back the next day wanting to buy the exhibit he wants to buy the tape and that tape's gone there's a new tape and uh, the gallery owner gets mad at him for not paying for the previous tape. And it's like, no, you have to pay to listen to it. And he starts listening to them more and more. And as the story goes on, she loses it on him and is just like, "You're f-, like," because he's he's desperate to meet this artist who's making these tapes, and he keeps asking her to set up a meeting. And at one point, towards the end of the story, she just loses it. And he's like, "Don't sit here and tell me that it's not you who brings these tapes by every night and tells me what to say to you the next day when you come in." And so, like, there's this doppelganger story in that. Is it a double or is he crazy? Like the the, mm. the layers of madness in it are really good. It's one of the rare runs where the uh, the narrator does seem to be breaking down a little bit, and the the story is sort of collapsing in on itself. But it's got mm. this great and like the scenes between him and the gallery owner are hilarious. They're super funny, but because of the implications, they're they're really quite scary. Like they're upending the reality of the story all the way through it. And that's where I think Legato really works. Is that the he finds something that is truly an like upsetting, disturbing idea, and then he it's so strong he can do anything with it. Like uh, he can just make fun of it, mm-hmm. but it still works. You know, like, because it is a truly at its heart a disturbing idea often. Yeah. I, that's where I see, like, the closest I think I've seen to Ligotti probably is David Lynch on certain films where he um, he does that same thing of, like, pointing out how he's doing all this artificial mm-hmm. stuff. Like, so in Mulholland Drive, there's a great scene where the, the, these two girls go to this uh, performance and they're at this, you know, club, Club Silencio. And uh, they're sitting in the audience and on stage, this guy comes out and says, you know, this is all a recording, it's all an act, you know, and, they, and it goes through this, you know, you know, this, the trumpet you hear is not a real trumpet, it's a recording of a trumpet. And like, they mime a trumpet and then, you know, they hear the sound of the trumpet, he like raises his hands and he like, shakes it and you hear lightning you know and thunder as if and the, like the lights flash as if you know it's all like synced you know as if he'd mm-hmm. call it up lightning but but it, the whole time they're doing this performance they're saying like this is all an act this is all performance if the music is recorded the lighting is fake and then this woman comes out and starts to sing a song and she sings um roy orbison's crying in spanish uh, rebecca del rio is the artist singing and she's and it's this amazing beautiful haunting like uh, performance and you just get wrapped right up into like how beautiful it is and then she falls to the ground and the singing keeps going because of course it's just a recording you know <laughs> and it's all been an act and it, I, Lynch does the stuff like that in a lot of movies where mm-hmm. I, I think it's probably the closest analog to this Ligotti thing where he'll he'll just sort of like tip his hand as to like here's the ridiculous thing I'm going to do now and then he'll do it and it'll still work yeah. And it shouldn't, you know, but it's almost like he's set this challenge of like, don't be afraid of this. These, these trousers are just haunted trousers. This is the most ridiculous yeah. thing you've ever heard. And then like, he'll like just move into like, well, what's truly disturbing in this scenario here? And uh, mm-hmm. like, and even like the, uh, we, even when the narrators aren't necessarily afraid, 
it is like still disturbing. Like, yeah. <laughs> like with the, the puppet, one of the things that's truly disturbing ultimately for that character is not that this like crazy puppet has been visiting him in like this surreal way. It's that he realizes with this most recent visit that, oh, the puppet hasn't only, wasn't even visiting me this time. He was visiting this other guy. This mm-hmm. puppet visits other people. And he's not special. <laughs> it's all just more nonsense, as he puts yeah. it. And like, the the world is just this nonsense. Yeah. Um, it, it's 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 really like what I find most impressive about Ligotti, and what I think is most just attractive about him is he has this very clear vision. He's just one of those artists that has a vision, and you can see him pursuing the vision. Mm-hmm. You know, and no matter what he's doing, it's just some variation of this whether it's the nonfiction or, you know, uh, these horror stories or whatever, it's just this like iteration of this same fundamental, like idea of, you know, the universe is this kind of weird nightmare of like annoying chaos. Yeah. <laughs> it's maybe the best way to put it. Yeah. There's like, there, there's that, there's an interesting thing there too, where like a lot of the narrator's reaction to these really horrifying things is, is mostly that they're annoyed. Yeah, uh, they aren't. To they aren't have to be alive. They aren't really terrified these of these things. They're more annoyed by it, mm-hmm. um, which is like a such a bonkers reaction. But th- there is something too about like how dark the vi- th- his vision of it is. Like if there is just something that is still just a little bit beyond what most people are doing now. Like even though it's old, mm-hmm. like so, Songs of a Dead Dreamer is the '80s. Yeah. Right? Like that's he's, true. he's been around for a while. It seems extremely modern. Like it, was, it seems like it was written tomorrow. Like it's got yeah. this very on the edge. But it's from quite a ways back and no one has quite caught up to what he did. Um, but there's a lot of, now the, the influence is so much more apparent, mm-hmm. right? Like when he was at, like when his first book came out and like for those first 10, 15, 20 years, Every now and then, someone would mention him, but like, he certainly wasn't mainstream. It was he wasn't sure. wasn't a well known name, and now it's been long enough uh, that a lot of the writers currently working now have have in some way had to deal with him. Like they either don't like it, or or they've really jumped on the Ligotti train, and they sort of uh, try to infuse some of that into their writing. And uh, like I think the best one of the best stories that really overtly deals with Ligotti's legacy is by Laird Barron. Um, and now I'm not going to remember what the title of it is. But there's there's a story, the very last story in The Beautiful Thing That Awaits Us All is about this writer uh, who goes to basically the KGB bar in New York for a horror reading. And they're all, getting, they're all excited to see Tom L., who is this reclusive author who never comes out and he's going to come do this reading. Um, and the guy comes out, and he's very, very tall, and he wears this weird cloak, doesn't really show his face, and then he's got, like, these, the, the cloak has these, these giant sleeves, and when he goes up to the microphone, he holds a puppet out one of the sleeves, and then as Tom L. is reading this story, and he keeps asking, like, these open-ended rhetorical questions about, like, what, you know, what is really going to happen in this horror story, and then the puppet keeps going, something worse, something <laughs> worse. And it's just this great take uh, of, of Laird Barron sort of like paying homage and poking fun at him mm. at the same time because that is like all of Lugati's stories, it's always, it's just down the rabbit hole. It just gets worse and worse and worse as think, you go. 
I think that to me is most so interesting with Ligotti is like I think the best slash purest horror is horror that is on the side of the monster somehow and, and, and like just has this fundamentally um, disturbed point of view where it's accepting the monster as the somehow the correct position to take Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think like a lot of Ligotti's narrators as I never th- noticed so much of the po- first person perspective before but as he's, as soon as he said it it makes sense like yeah. I think so maybe one of the explanations for that to some degree is like so many of his narrators seem to be fundamentally they have just accepted like by the end of most people's horror stories is when the narrator accepts the reality of the monster like so the typical progression of horror is that you know you deny you deny you deny you deny uh, that these things are happening and then finally you have to accept that they're happening eventually yeah. near the end or at the end and maybe you're destroyed by that mm. I think so much of what the God is like the character has already accepted by like the story's opening like that this this all has been happening as soon yeah. as it happens it's like well of course it happened it's <laughs> yeah. so like as soon as like some unexplainable insanity occurs it's just like well I was waiting for that to happen <laughs> yeah. so like it, it's from the outside point of view like as a reader it's still like disturbing and insane uh, like this universe that he's uh, painting you know but from the perspective of that character it's, it's almost like you know they're just bored and annoyed <laughs> half yeah. the time by this you know horrific event that they just almost like half expected to happen you know and and they've just they've they've they're just in such a nightmare situation that they have given up before you know things even began half the time it seems Mm -hmm. or they're just mystified by some other third thing that you know is so again as you say like so far beyond like maybe what we are concerned with and we're kind of catching up to the narrator in a certain respect mm. in terms of like what is truly horrible here. And, you know, so I think maybe it kind of gives that a weird impression of like, you know, something worse is happening than what it seems like you've got initially. Yeah. And, and just as this weird like barreling effect or snowballing effect in, in many ways in the stories where you kind of start off in a bad place. <laughs> yeah. you know, it just keeps like, you just keep adding layers and layers to like, what's going on here and packing it and packing it and packing it. But yet like, um, we, we were always cold, you know, it's yeah. sort of like how it, it seems to kind of work in a way. Yeah. Anyway, last thoughts on Thomas Sagatti. I would say my last thought on Thomas Sagatti is I honestly, like if you don't know who Thomas Sagatti is, go and get the Penguin Classics book or Teatro Grotesco or, you know, mm-hmm. my work is not yet done because those are the three books that's easiest to find. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, really, you know, check them out. Even if you're not a fan of horror, but just are, you know, more interested in kind of weirder fiction or even just kind of experimental metafiction, you know, there's a lot to Ligotti has to offer for really anyone. Or even if you just want dance poetic prose because he is like a master stylist. Like, I can't mm-hmm. think of another writer who can match him yeah. as a stylist. Yeah, there is that. Like, he's been most recognized by the horror community, but, uh, no, he's he's a full-on literary heavyweight. Like, there's there's a lot of interesting uh, metatextual and intertextual stuff going on with all his writing. His prose is incredibly 
florid and well-packed and visual and he's just a really good writer he's also really scary but he's just he's a great writer I think like I, I keep saying like I would probably go so far to say that he is the the best horror writer since Poe yeah which is saying a lot and I, and I know it sounds like a would you like what do you think about that like I think that's a, it seems like a crazy claim but I honestly Ooh. like I wonder if he's the best horror writer in history and I think he may he's certainly the best horror writer since Poe yeah I, I do think so actually there's a lot of yeah it's just I can't I can't get enough of it. like like we were saying you, you get these books and you don't I don't want to finish the book <laughs> because I don't yeah. want to be running out of Ligotti stories. Like I want them, I want there to be more. And I, I am rereading them all now. I'm having the same problem, even as I'm rereading them. But it, it, there's that too, that there's a wealth, like there's something to be gained from re, re, rereading stuff, which is not always the case with modern stuff. And it's not always the case with even really good horror writers. Like some of them don't hold up well to be read again. Um, Stephen King is the best example of that. Um, if you want to ruin a Stephen King book you really like, just read it again. <laughs> <laughs> I won't go quite that far, but I've read some dogs uh, yeah. and some great stuff. But, but I always wonder with certain books if I went back to them. Yeah, but th- there's a richness to the, the Ligotti stories that I is is unique. That is, it's rewarding to get to just how densely packed. They are, and there's something like so. That when I w- was teaching, and I would teach uh, the James Joyce story, The Dead, yeah, uh, and I will, I always try to explain. It was like, okay, so like the actual nuts and bolts, like the the plot of this story is not very interesting. Like it's just it's Christmas party, you go to a Michaelmas party. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what's interesting about about it is if you can grasp it as a whole. So that's a story that's the most rewarding when you read it multiple times. And you you are aware of all the layers all at once. Uh, that's when it's at its best. So the first time you read it, you're not you're not getting it all. Uh, and that's how I think a lot of Ligotti stories work. Is that they function best when you are aware of all of their moving parts. And if you can if you can grasp the whole thing, then it's really something special. But you gotta you gotta work at that. Like that's hard. It's hard to get into. So check out Tom Sagotti and uh, you know. I especially again recommend the Penguin Classics, but uh, really anything you can find. Honestly, <laughs> you can actually find a Ligotti book for under a hundred dollars. You should probably buy it. <laughs> it sounds yeah. ridiculous to say that, but like, and somebody out there, like, please reprint some of these Ligotti books and um, keep writing the wrong way. <laughs> yeah.